Luke 21. As you open up, when I was a kid, this is my introduction, just I was trying to think. Luke 21 is a strange passage. It's very, very odd. You're going to see in a second. I'm trying to figure out how do I, how do I transition into Luke 21. I was thinking back when I was a kid. There were, my, for Christmas or for my birthday, my parents got me a lot of toys. Some were really nice. Some were strange. Like some strange ones. You ever get that, that game called Simon? Did you ever play Simon? has a light, and you go, you got a kind of, it's a repeating pattern. You play it one time, and it's like, I don't ever want to play this game again. This is the dumbest game I ever played in my life. There's other games, like, do you ever get a hacky sack? Let's play hacky sack. You kick it one time, it goes into the gutter of your roof. That doesn't last too long. Or a bouncing ball. Here, Chris, take this bouncing ball. I bounce it, it goes into the main highway, and I lose it forever. But there's one toy I think is the worst toy ever created, and that's, the most, to me, this is the most worthless toy. I have it in my pocket. This is, to me, the most worthless toy ever created. Now, some of you, like, hey, Josh, can you figure it out? See, Josh Whitehead, I knew you could figure it out. I, I don't know why, but I knew you could. Jared, can you figure it out? The, the reason why this is, to me, the most worthless toy, I can get one side. And I feel really good, so I'm like, I did it. See? See how good? But if I try to get the backside, like let's say all of a sudden I want to get oranges, so I try to get all oranges, all of a sudden after I get oranges, see I'm getting some oranges on that side, but look at my white side. And it would drive me crazy. I can't stand this thing, and this would soon be out in my backyard as a chew toy for my dog. Can't stand this thing. And what I realized, this is exactly like Luke 21. Luke 21 is, to me, one of the most cryptic messages Jesus ever gave. It's also, you can find it in Matthew as well. But the title of this is really, it's all about the fig tree. And we're going to make sense out of the Bible's most cryptic puzzle. And the reason why I call it a puzzle is there's sometimes when you read it, you think, oh, I, I got this section figured out. But then all of a sudden, when you get this section figured out, it paints the, the, another part of the section and it doesn't make sense. And then when I go to the other part of the section, I try to figure that out, and it, it makes the first part I read. Like, it's, it's so strange. But I'm like Josh Whitehead with Luke 21. I can figure out the Rubik's Cube of Luke 21. So if you are ready to think along with me, we're going to go through Luke 21, and we're going to go through the whole passage. And by, this, by the end of it, my hope is that you'll start looking in the sky again, because I think it's close. I think the return of our Savior is close. And I'll prove it through the Rubik's Cube of Luke 21. So before we read, I, we're going to begin in verse 5. Before we get there, Paul Slaughter last week talked about the story of the vineyard and the steward. And he, and he told us where the location was. Jesus was in the temple teaching. And we don't really have time to go through all of Luke 20. Actually, if we spent all of our time in Luke, we could be in five years. So we're kind of going pretty quick through it. But when he's in the temple, if you look in your Bibles, Luke 20, verse 27, he gets in an argument with the Sadducees. Later, he gets in an argument in verse 45 with the scribes. And we jump to chapter 21. And as they're walking through the temple, he sees this lady who gives two copper coins. And Jesus says, mark that lady. She gives more... That's, all of her money as compared to these people who put on a show and put some money in. And then he's, what he's doing is he's just teaching through the temple. And then they decide to sit and um, they go outside the city and they sit on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, there's two hills. 
the Mount of Olives is up here, and then you go down into the valley, and then it goes back up into the city of Jerusalem, and you can see the incredible temple. But the disciples and Jesus walk through the temple, go down the valley, and they're sitting up on the Mount of Olives. And this is where a lot of people call this the Olivet Discourse, where the disciples are asking him a question. And what they're asking him is very significant. So we start this in verse 5. Check this out. Luke 21, 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned, so what Matthew says is they were actually sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple. And the temple is beautiful. Herod's temple is made of giant stones. I got to actually see it when I went to Jerusalem with Bill, Bill and Linda Rexford. Remember seeing those stones, Bill, when we went to the Wailing Wall, we went into this back room. How massive, Bill, were those white stones? Just massive limestone. And they're still there. Same stones Jesus is talking about. And while some were speaking of the temple, verse 5, how it was adorned with noble stones, giant stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so he's saying, you see that temple that's made out of those grand stones? There's going to be a day when that temple is thrown down and they just can't believe it be like somebody saying somebody someday is going to fly an airplane into the twin towers in new york come on it's crazy it's probably what they're thinking verse 7 and they asked him teacher when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place this is where we're going to begin this is the question so first slide is the question is, the disciples are looking at the temple and they're going to say, when will this happen? When will this temple be destroyed? So Jesus is going to talk about an event, historical event that happened, but he's also going to use that event to talk about the end of the world, when it's going to come. So it's actually, he's going to answer this question in two parts. That's why it's so complicated. This is why it's kind of Rubik's Cubics. Like, what is he talking about? So he goes through this, and he's going to answer the question. I'll read it, and then I'll work through it. So he's, they said, teacher, in verse 7, when will these things be? When are they going to take place? Verse 8, he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to him, to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from the heavens. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated all by, for my name's sake. But do not, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know 
that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out of the country enter, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times that Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's where we'll end. Could you imagine being disciples hearing that answer? So Jesus, when will this temple fall down? Nation will rise again. What are you, what are you talking? I don't know what you're talking about. I would be confused. I think we're still confused. Because what he's, ta he's talking about a lot of different things. But in my mind, the key to this understanding this whole thing is there is one sign he is saying is the most important sign, and it's verse 29. Here's what he says. He told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Verse 30, as soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer's already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So what he's saying is when you see the fig tree bloom, when you see the fig tree get full, when you see figs starting to appear, be ready. Be ready. Because everybody knows when a tree starts blooming, you know what season of the year is. He says when you see the fig tree bloom, get ready. So does that mean we're supposed to go to fig orchards? Because every year our fig tree blooms. No, there is a very specific fig tree he's talking about. And to me, this is the key to the whole thing. The fig tree is, according to Hosea, the nation Israel. So he's talking about the nation Israel. We'll talk about this in a minute. But he's saying, really, the center of prophecy, the center of when Jesus comes back is to watch the nation of Israel. When you start to see it get full, get ready. Get ready. The reason why I say it's the nation Israel is because there's a lot of Old Testament references to the fig tree pointing to actually God's people. The first fig tree ever, ever mentioned was the figs that hid the sin of Adam and Eve. And then as you get along, you'll see that Jesus refers to Israel's, we talked about last week, the vineyard, but also he talks about the, he talks about the olive tree. And then he loves to use the fig tree as a reference to the people because it's a, it's a local tree. Actually, the Amos, the book of Amos, Amos was a fig farmer. 
But in Hosea 9, look at what he's saying. Hosea is a whole book on how Israel is, is, is a wayward wife. And it's specifically pointing to the nation Israel. And it says, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. He's saying, you, Israel, are like the fig tree. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, talking to the scribes, talking to his disciples. And he's saying, when you see the fig tree bloom, get ready. So we're going to talk about the fig tree. And we're actually going to talk about three questions. Number one, what are the things that are signs that the fig tree is blooming? Number two, what is the timeline? When will it be? Like, historically, is there, do we have any specific time when it's going to be? And third, what are we supposed to do as we see the fig tree bloom? So we're going to talk about what are the things that are signs the fig tree is blooming. Secondly, we're going to talk about when will this occur. And thirdly, what are we supposed to do? So let's first of all talk about the things. We find the things actually starting in about verse 7. I'm going to call, there's two types of things that Jesus is going to talk about. Things that are going to be universal in scope. Really, the earth is falling apart. He's saying signs that the earth is falling apart and the end is getting near are universal things. So I call them the universal signs that the fig tree is starting to bloom. Verse 7 says, teacher, when will these things be? And he said, Verse 8, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Do not go after them. He says, don't be fooled when you see false prophets. They're going to be all over the place. False prophets, false religions, liars. Actually, Timothy says, in the later days, many will abandon the faith and start teaching lies. Taught through deceitful spirits and demons. And so don't be surprised when you start seeing all kind of different religions, cults, a lot of people claiming Christ Christianity, but not people like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by cults. It's going to keep going because the spirit of the Antichrist is going to grow as the Antichrist comes. The second universal sign is verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom, there will be great earthquakes, various places, famines, and pestilences. Because the earth is falling apart, the idea is that worldwide wars and catastrophes are going to be natural, and we see them. Why is there ISIS? Why is there problems in North Korea? Why is, was there World War II? Why was there Vietnam? Because mankind's sin, it's in us, and it starts giving fruit, and fruit is war. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. The world's falling apart. It's a universal sign. It's funny, well, I'll talk about it in a second. The third thing is he says this, verse 12, before this, they will lay hands, okay, actually, wait, no, verse 11, there will be great earthquakes, and there will be terrors and great signs in heaven. And one of the third thing is just this idea of the heavens, you'll start seeing heavenly disturbances. And as we get towards Revelation, really the end time, the heaven's going to be shook up. But it's not this, don't fall for the blood moon stuff that was sort of made up kind of a made-up thing. You'll see a real blood moon. You'll see real stars fall from the sky. So what he's saying is there's universal signs. When these things start increasing and start getting more and more, it's a sign that things are getting closer. That's all he's saying. But then he gives what I'm going to call very specific signs to the people he's talking to. So he's talking to the disciples. 
And then he gets really specific, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This is where it sort of gets confusing, because a lot of, if you have a cross-reference Bible, it'll point to the book of Acts, saying the apostles specifically were brought before kings, rulers. In the book of Acts, Paul was brought before Festus. James and John were brought before Herod, or the synagogue rulers. And so what Jesus is saying is they're going to take you. And then also, verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before how you'll answer. And a lot of times the apostles just had to preach. They were given no time. Verse 16, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers, relatives, friends. Some of them will put to death. Did you know Peter was hung upside down? Most of the apostles were martyred for what they believed. Paul had his head cut off. Thomas went to India, and he was killed in India. So this is talking more in a specific sign. So here's some specific signs, you know, personal persecution. What's interesting, it even says Christians will be persecuted, but Jesus is saying, you apostles, you who are listening to me, don't be surprised when they start killing you. And there were a lot of Christians killed in the first century, a lot of them. And then he keeps saying, verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you'll gain your lives. It's kind of a strange passage. If they're going to be killed, how can not a hair of their head perish? But I think he's talking more, he's, they are going to be all right eternally. So then you have verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now this is a biggie. So not only specific sign will be personal persecution, but there, when you see the destruction of Jerusalem, it's getting close. Now verse 20, a lot of scholars will say it has... Some people think it has a singular meaning. Some people think it has a dual meaning. A singular meaning in A.D. 70, Roman, the Roman emperor came in and destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews. That's why it says, verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not one of those who are out of the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon earth. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled. But there's a key. It will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the full number of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That means it will, there will be a time when it isn't trampled. This is a very confusing thing. I'll explain it in a minute, the way I think the Rubik's Cube fits together. But there is a hint to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But people also say this is a projection of what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes and he is really going to decimate Jerusalem. So these are some of the signs, universal signs and specific signs. When you start to see these things happen, get ready. What I find interesting is a lot of Americans think signs should be Amerocentric. So have you ever heard of the book The Harbinger? The Harbinger is the book that came out. It's still the best-selling book, and it talks about how the, the Twin Towers are a sure sign Jesus is coming back. Can I tell you something? Why are we so egocentric to think it's about us? It's not about us. Israel is the focus. Israel's the focus. Don't buy books like that. Really, don't buy books like that. They're just taking your money. 
Some people think Donald Trump's the Antichrist. <laughs> there have been a lot worse leaders than Donald Trump. Genghis Khan was a lot worse leader than Donald Trump. So let's, then when will it be? When will this come to fruition? So their question to Jesus in verse 7 is, Teacher, when will these things be? And they wanted to know, that word be means, what exactly is going to be the time frame? So when will it be? When will it come to fruition? And in my mind, the key to this is verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you will see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. And I believe Israel, there's going to be a summer for Israel. But there's a very debated verse. The biggest debated verse, I think, in the Bible about prophecies is verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So people will think this verse is the key linchpin to understand all prophecy. Truly I say to you, this generation. So this generation, when this generation, the generation that sees all the signs, is alive, then that's when it's going to happen. So a lot of people try to interpret what does this generation mean. One group believes the generation that he's talking to is the generation where all this will occur. So you could say this. Is Jesus talking to his immediate audience? A lot of prophecy buffs who are called preterists believe that all of prophecy is done. It all happened in the first century. When Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70, that was revelation taking place. It's all done. It's over. In my mind, I don't buy it for hundreds of reasons. But there's some people that think, just even talking about the Olivet Discourse, it's all over. It's done. We don't need to look for forward to anything because Jesus, in a sense, is reigning in, invisibly right now. All we're waiting for is him to just set up his throne on earth. But I don't take that. Second group will say this. It's, it's impossible to discern. Because there's all kind of interpretations for the idea of this generation. This generation could be 40 years. And specifically, in 1947, Europe gave the rights for Israel to establish a nation again. So people say, okay, if it was 1947 is when Israel made themselves a nation, a generation's 40 years. So a lot of people thought it would be 1987 when Jesus would come back. Or 1988. So a lot of people would have 99 reasons Jesus returned in 1988, 1987. And then you have 1967, the seven-day war. This is going to be the 50th anniversary of it, when actually they got all kind of land because Egypt and some of the other nations around Israel started attacking them, and they took their land, like the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights. So people, some people view that as that was more of the promised land. So they'll take 40 years from that. Some people take a generation's really 51.2 years if you look in the Bible. Some people say, no, a generation's 70 years or 80 according to Psalm 90. In my mind, I don't know. But there is one more interpretation. And this is fascinating to me. I had a scholar come into Moody. He's from Hebrew University. He was a Jew that was actually saved, so he's a Messianic Jew. And he would say, he would call it, there's one more. Go to, hit that. Call it the last days of Israel. I'd call it Israel's summer. The summer of Israel. So go to the next slide. 
And he pointed us to Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Go to Hosea chapter 3, 4, and 5. Hosea chapter 3. Hosea is about Israel and how they were like a bride that left their husband. And God is going to call them back. Now watch what this verse says. Hebrews 3, 4, and 5. This is very fascinating to me. And this is what our Hebrew scholar pointed out. He said, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days, he's talking about dwell in their land, many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or a household god. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in later days. And he pointed out three things. Number one, this says that the children of Israel come back to the land, but they won't be religious. It won't be a religious Israel. They will not have a king or a prince. That means a, a theocracy. They won't have sacrifice or pillar. That means they really won't go to the temple to offer sacrifice. They won't be able to. They won't have ephod or household gods, meaning they won't have the priesthood set up to do the sacrifice. But they will return, but it will be a secular Israel. An Israel kind of like a democratic Israel, not a theocratic Israel. And that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing this. And it says, after they return, the children of Israel will start seeking the Lord their God, David their king, and they shall come in fear of the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. So they first have to be established in the land, and then once they're established in the land, according to Ze uh, Zechariah 12, a spirit, the Holy Spirit will be poured on them, and their eyes will awaken. He believes that when the church is raptured out, God is going to, and the church is who, we are basically the house of the Holy Spirit. When the church is taken out, then God is going to pour the Holy Spirit on the nation Israel. And when he does, that's when the time frame kicks in. Who's confused? Anybody confused? Rubik's Cube confused? I'm trying to confuse you to show you that I can solve this puzzle, and you can. Actually, it's very confusing. I love prophecy, but I remember... I tried to preach a real long sermon one time. Everybody, I don't understand a word you said. It can drive me crazy. But all I'm saying to me, Israel is where we need to keep our focus. It's fascinating right now. I was looking up yesterday for some headlines in Israel. One day ago, here's what a headline said. West Bank settlement has been approved first time in 20 years. Europe is furious. They feel, really, actually, they feel, feel ennobled because Donald Trump actually is pro-Israel, and so they feel ennobled to go and build. If you, Bill, how many cranes did you see working when we were in Israel? Wasn't unbelievable? Everywhere we went in Israel, settlement going up, settlement going up, settlement going up, settlement going up. They are the number one exporter of fruit. They are a powerhouse, economically speaking. Then I read this yesterday, too. Because of the 50th anniversary of the, the war, there's research going on on trying to really expedite the work of the new temple. And I'm not, I'll just tell you what, I'm not like, um, oh, who's that guy that, Jack Van Empey? I'm not Jack Van Empey where I read every headline as a sign that Jesus is coming back. All I'm saying, it's amazing. Israel's amazing. 
Because here was a nation that was destroyed, they were scattered, and they are back in. And we see it with our very eyes. You can say that's just coincidence, or you can say, I see the fig tree starting to bloom. That's how I see it. Some people might think I'm crazy, but I'll tell you why I don't think I'm crazy in a second. So here's the timeline. I'm really going to make it confusing for you, okay? This is where it gets really confusing. You have the cross. We are right before the crucifixion in Luke. And then there's going to be a day when Jesus himself, so after Jesus dies and rises again, he goes into heaven. There's going to be a day when he comes back and sets up his throne on the earth. So this is the timeline of in between. And I'm going to give you what's going to happen. I'm a dispensationalist, which means I believe Israel is different than the Gentiles in the church. There's different happenings for us. That's called a dispensational view. A covenant view believes when Jesus came in, and he came in, Pastor Ken preached it two weeks ago in Palm Sunday, and they rejected him. All of the promises to Israel were then transferred to the church. That's called basically a covenant theology. I'm dispensational in nature, so I believe Israel is still going to take place. So here's how it happened. You have Israel's going to be on the bottom. That will be their timeline. On the top, I'm going to show you what's happening in the world. First of all, go ahead and hit it. Because they rejected Jesus, that was the triumphal entry, Luke 19, 41 to 43. Because they rejected Jesus, said, you, Israel, are going to be cursed. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I, get, I wanted to gather you in as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. So woe to you. Their hearts were hardened. And then, because hardened, really the benefit of Israel's hearts being hardened is God has turned his attention to the Gentiles. If you go back to Luke, 21, look at verse 24. So he's talking about the hardening that happens to the Jews. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among nations. I believe that happened in AD 70. They were destroyed by the, and then they were scattered. It says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I believe we are living under the times of the Gentiles, where God's attention has been on the world. And he used the church. So here's the world. Go ahead and hit it. So basically, we are in the church age. Acts 1, 8. He told the disciples, Go to Jerusalem, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth, and I will give you power. And he gave the disciples power to start the church. And they spread out all over Europe. And they started churches in places like Thessalonica, in Galatia, in Philippi. That's why we have Galatians, Philippians. He spread the church. And then if we had it, we Kentsidians, the church is being formed all over the world. While the church is being called, actually the church means the called out ones. Christians are called out ones. While the church is being formed, the world itself is falling apart. There will be kingdoms against kingdoms, nations against nations. While we are being made more Christ-like, those outside the church are being made more wicked. What's happening in Israel while the church is being formed? Well, you have AD 70, I believe that's what verse 24 is about. AD 70 is where Rome came in, pillaged Jerusalem, scattered them. So go hit it again. And he, as they were scattered, they were led captive. 
They were led captive to places like Russia, Egypt, Germany. And there was, and by captivity, there's anti-Semitic is a promise that happened in Deuteronomy 28. So why did Hitler kill the Jews? Because it was just him. I think there's a demonic force. You can find it in Revelations 13, how Satan hates the Jews, hates them. Kind of strange. That's why I think there's a huge anti-Semitic. I think it's not just prejudice. There's something demonic about it. But then, as the timeline goes, what you're going to start seeing is the summer for Israel. I think that's where we're at right now. I read that, where Luke says, you'll start seeing blossoming. Hosea, which we read for you, they will come back to the nations. Ezekiel 37, the dry bones will start be putting on flesh. Jeremiah 20, go to Jeremiah 23, 7. This is a really interesting verse. Jeremiah 23, 7. Jeremiah 23, verse 7. Jeremiah writes, Therefore, behold. And behold is a word that means listen up. This is really important. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, they shall dwell in their own land. So he's saying, the way that people used to identify God, especially the Jews, is they said, we are the people of God, the God who led our people out of Egypt. He said, but in the later days, they're going to change that identity. We are the people of God who took us from all of the scattered north country and brought us back to our own land. That's the summer of Israel. How are you guys doing? You with me so far? Good? Makes sense? Go back to Luke. Go back to Luke 21. We have one more thing. So the idea is when you start seeing that happen, get ready. There's one more thing. And this is the bad one. And this is where I believe it begins in verse 25. Verse 25 says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. That's a universal statement, meaning something bad is going to happen to the world where the whole world is going to faint with fear because they won't believe it. We call this the tribulation. Seven years of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. So the way it happens is the church itself, I believe, will be taken out before that happens, and I'll show you a verse in a second. And God is going to basically pour his wrath out. And that's where it says, verse 27, And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's the second coming. That's when he sets up his throne on earth. But you notice Israel's summer, when they are gathered, really is the last sign before the tribulation happens. And I think we're there. I think we're awfully close. So the question is then, what do we do while we wait? And the answer is verse 34. What do we do while we wait for really him to return? And verse 34 says, watch. 
watch. I think we're to watch for two things. Listen to how he writes it. Watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that they come upon you suddenly like a trap or it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So I think we're to be watching for two things. Number one, the signs. Watching for his coming. I think we're supposed to be aware. Not to be ignorant. Actually, this will be the last place I take you. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Thessalonians is after Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Then you go to 1 Thessalonians. Watch how chapter 5 reads. It says, now concerning, this is chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul, Paul wants you to know this stuff. That, I know it's complicated. I understand. Some of you love this stuff. Some of you are glazed eyes saying, I have no idea what he talked about the whole time. None. Zero. That's okay. That's all right. But at least you know where to go when you're hungry. Because your kid's going to say, hey, Mom, when's Jesus coming back? Oh, and you see the fig tree bloom. What are you talking about, Mom? I'm glad you asked. Let's go through the Bible. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, meaning the times and the seasons of the blooming of the tree, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. While people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you. Basically, he's saying it is going to come like a thief, but you should not be surprised. Well, shouldn't we be surprised by a thief? Yeah, but not if you see the seasons and understand them. So you need to start staying, paying attention. It's happening, and it's kind of exciting to me. I, when my dad would go on long trips, I remember looking down our street, and I'd see his car coming up, and I got excited. I couldn't wait for my dad to come home. So watch yourselves, but it also says this. Watch your heart in the meantime. The idea is, he says, stop drinking and getting drunk and partying and just ignoring things that matter. Will you stop it? It's funny, I had a guy come into my office. And he was, he's a great guy, but his parents... His parents wanted to keep him away from drinking. And so the way that they did it is they would have him think that partying is the stupidest thing that ever happened, like it was just an illusion. So he came to my office and said, I don't understand why people drink. It's just, I don't get it. They're just so, so stupid. And I said, because it's fun? Well, you're a pastor. Are you supposed to say that? Drinking is a lot of fun. I mean, it really is. Like it's a blast. Parties are fun. He said, but you're a pastor. You're not supposed to say that. Well, it's the truth. That's why people do it. Why else do you think people drink and get drunk and go to parties? Because it's fun. But are we on this earth just to have fun? Is that why God made me? Why did God design me to be noble, to have purpose, to reach people before the end? I'm not just here to be a fool. I've spent enough time doing that. Like, what I find crazy is there's a teaching, a lot of, you know, we are a church of grace. So if you want to drink, we're not going to say, oh, the policy says you shall not drink. You leave. 
You were kicking you out of the church. Grace means we believe that the Holy Spirit lives in you, so you should have discernment. Don't get drunk. That's a sin. And so we don't come knocking on your houses and open your fridges and seeing if you got beer in there. But some people take advantage of this, and they become like beer and wine connoisseurs, and they have a few friends that they do it with and keep it hidden. Like, wow, we're allowed to drink. But don't tell all those other Christians they couldn't handle it. Like, like you're really cool because you... How hard is it to drink? It's not hard to drink. Our job isn't just to think we're cool because we can drink and get drunk. And look how much better. You know what we're here for? To glorify God with our life. Stop dissipating your life. Just being cool because you think you can party and dance to a stupid song that has a beat. You are made in the image of Jesus Christ. You are his brother or sister. Why do you, why do you think you've got to be a fool? Remember my... My dad hated bathroom humor, hated it, hated it, like toilet humor. It said, and he would, I'd have friends that would always use it. He'd always say this, why do you got to make things uglier than they already are? We are here to think about noble things, beautiful things, good things. And what, what he's saying is be noble, don't be a fool because Jesus is coming back. And the final reminder is this. He says this in verse 33. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. He's coming back. He's not kidding around. Second Peter says, you're going to live in a time when people are going to scoff and say, oh, I've heard that a hundred times that he's coming back. A lot of people mock it because it sounds kind of far-fetched. How? Oh, Israel, Israel, oh, all of this stuff's going to work. I want to show you a video that will amaze you. It will amaze you. And if this person can do that, don't you think Jesus can bring everything to fruition? Watch this.
if that, if, that, if that kid can do that, if that kid can do that, don't you think Jesus can kind of do, make sure his word works together? I think sometimes we're like, that's impossible. Nothing's impossible. And if he said it, it's going to come true. I'm going to invite Jared to come up. I'll pray for you, and we're going to end on one more song. Let's pray. Father, I have a feeling this is kind of a confusing message. That's okay, because it confuses me. But all I know is that you are telling us that you're coming back. And there are signs. And uh, you give us answers. Sometimes they don't make sense, but you want us to trust you anyhow. And I just pray that, Father, two things. We would look for your appearing. We'd be excited about it. But secondly, in the meantime, we'd be noble people. We'd be people who are godly. We'd be people who don't think we're cool because we can get away with doing things. That we really glorify Jesus with our life. Thank you, Father, for all you do. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.